0: Welcome. We're so glad you're here to join us at Waterstone. The Thanksgiving season is upon us, and today we're reflecting on the discipline of gratitude. This discipline reminds us to take the focus off of us and our circumstances and turn our eyes toward Jesus. No matter what, we can be grateful for his blood that has redeemed us. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, he writes, be thankful and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. As we navigate this season and encourage one another, we hope that you have a blessed Thanksgiving holiday. I think that there are two types of people. Those who would choose to have Thanksgiving, if they could only have Thanksgiving or Christmas, for the rest of their life, they would choose Thanksgiving. Um, And then there are the rest of us who would choose Christmas right? So raise your hand though. We're going to call you out if you're a Thanksgiving person. If you're like, that's my holiday. Yeah. You know, oh wow. Okay. All right. I like that people are like, all right, other people are raising their hands. I can do it too. Um, I would say this is a no judgment zone, but it's not. So uh, thank you for being so honest. I am not a Thanksgiving person, uh, or I should say that differently. I, I love Thanksgiving, the holiday, but the idea of being forced to give thanks has always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And I think it goes back to my childhood. Here is a photo of, uh, 1996. This is myself and my two brothers. My younger brother is two days old on this day. So, uh, December 23rd is his birthday and my older brother who is not having photo time, uh, photo time in our house was like a six hour event because my dad taught photography. Um, but uh, so I'm, I'm the son of uh, a father with three boys. And we would oftentimes, especially as the young, uh, youngest one got a little older, we'd be crammed in the back of a 1986 baby blue Volvo station wagon. And the three of us, as any group of young boys crammed together, would all of a sudden just get antsy and angry and irritable um, and argumentative. And in the middle of all this, my dad, and if you're a parent, you know what this sounds like, would all of a sudden just say, stop. That's it. Every one of you is going to say five things you're thankful for or you're not getting out of this car alive. It was the 90s. You could say that sort of thing to your kids. And so sure enough, we'd all roll our eyes and we'd say five things that we were thankful for. Last week, my parents were out here to see Audrey, our our new daughter. And um, as we're driving home from the Saturday night service, the mood is starting to shift. We probably should have had dinner before or like right afterwards, but we stuck around and talked. It's never happened to your family, I'm sure. And as we're going home, we realize, I realize that we are getting argumentative and offensive and angry and hangry. And so what do I do? I say, that's it. No one is getting out of this car alive unless you say five things that you are thankful for from the past week. And my parents, it's funny, they laughed and they humored me and they did it. But my dad remarked later that, you know, as much as that's funny, it really did change the atmosphere for the rest of the night. And we see this over and over. There are studies, if you Google this, I mean, almost every single year there's a significant study done by some research institution, some university, that they decide that if you are grateful, you have better sleep and you have better self-esteem and so on and so on. But I want to be really clear as we begin here that the reason that we pause in the church calendar and that we remind each other of the virtue of thanksgiving is not because of better sleep or better self-esteem. Those, that is true. And it's not because we have a national day committed to it this coming week. It's because of this. I really want us to walk away with this. That for followers of Jesus, that means if you're here and, you're, and you follow Jesus, and if you're not, you're off the hook. But if you do, giving thanks isn't just a thing we do, but thankfulness is a characteristic we are called to embody. With that said, would you mind, I'm gonna pray and then we'll jump in and look at Colossians 3. Lord, uh, today I am standing in front of our church body and um, the things that we will be hearing will not be new to most of us. In fact, maybe they won't be new to any of us. Uh, But I'm reminded of the quote, truth deserves repeating. And so I ask that right now, this message would hit each of us, including myself, in a way that it both challenges us and encourages us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we are looking at Colossians 3. We've just finished a series on 1 John. It was our small group series last week. Paul wrapped that up, and next week we'll begin Advent. But we have this in-between week where we're going to pause and look at Colossians 3. So let me kind of set up what we're going to be looking at so we can jump into uh, the verses I really want to highlight today. Uh, Paul is writing to a church, right? Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament. He was like the Billy Graham of back then, except bigger than Billy Graham. So he writes all this to uh, this church in Colossae. And the first four verses, he says, hey, if you follow Jesus, which is everyone he's basically writing to, you're called to be different, In other words, the rest of your ancient Roman world can act one way, but you're called to act a different way. And then he moves on to verses five through 11. And he says, and here are the don'ts of how you're going to be different. And you could probably fill in the blank if you've ever um, walked into a Sunday school class, maybe after preschool. He says, all right, don't lie, Uh, watch rage, don't take advantage of other people. And the list goes on and on. And then he wraps up this section, with an admonishment to encourage them by saying, these are the things I want you to do because you are different. And again, you could probably list some of these. Patience, kindness, pursue peace. Love, he says, is the chief virtue. Well, what's interesting to me is that when Paul, the Apostle Paul, who's bigger than Billy Graham in the old in the New Testament, this guy, he decides to wrap this section up, to conclude it, and simultaneously to give the most space on the page or parchment paper to this one thing. And here it is in the second half of verse 15 through 17. Would you read those first three words with me? And be thankful. Paul is saying, let me remind us, that for followers of Jesus, and we'll see, I'll prove this to you in a moment, that thanksgiving isn't something we just do. Thankfulness is a characteristic we embody. So he says, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through Psalms hymns and songs from the spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God, the father through him. Paul says, thanksgiving is something that we embody. It's a characteristic of believers. But I wanna point out a few things from this section. Let's look just specifically at verse 16. He says this, Let the message of Christ dwell among you. So the first thing I want to point out is the corporate nature of thanksgiving. Let me explain what I mean by that. Paul doesn't say, go into your car and give thanks. Go into your prayer closet, isolate yourself in solitude and give thanks to God. To be clear, Jesus does encourage us to go into a private space and we see him modeling this by going into solitude. But in this context, Paul says, I actually want you to be together with other believers giving thanks. There's something that happens when you hear the voice of the person standing next to you proclaiming God's goodness on a Sunday morning or Saturday night. There is something different that happens when it's not the radio you turn to, but it's a friend you walk up to who says, this is what God has done in my life. And Paul says to us, that is what you're called to. It's not a private Thanksgiving, but a corporate one. Um, I have been at Waterstone now for several years, and enough that I had a middle school student who's now married. And uh, that's how you know you're getting old, right? It's like that and walking into Costco and you want to see the like, light bulbs. Genuinely like, oh my gosh, there's eight of them for $5? Those are the signs that like, my life is really just taking some downward turns. <laughs> but specifically, I remember this student, and I'll call him Stephen for the sake of uh, anonymity. But I remember years ago when I first had moved out here and I came to Waterstone, call, uh, reaching out to him and saying, hey, man, I'd love to get together. You know, it'd be awesome. Let me buy you um, like a burger and fries and we'll just catch up. And we had a great relationship, this kid and I. Uh, but over time, I kept reaching out and I even texted him like, hey, man, just want to follow up on that offer. Or do you want to get together? And nothing. I mean, just radio silence. And so one day I called his mom. Right? Like all cool youth pastors do. I called his mom and I said, hey, I just want to reach out. I I want to let you know, you know, I've I've given an offer to Stephen. I do this all the time, multiple times a week to students. I'm always getting one-on-ones with them, um, but I'd love to take him out. And I'll never forget this conversation because Stephen's mom said to me on the phone, she said, you know, for Stephen, his faith is a really private thing. A thing that he doesn't really like to talk to about with other people even his youth pastor and he likes you but his faith is private and I remember in this moment thinking I can concede that point or I can tell you what Jesus actually says and I said I got to be honest I think it's absolutely acceptable that Stephen's faith is personal but I don't think there's any call in scripture that our faith would be private So when Paul calls us to give thanks, he says, I know that it goes against what we want to do. I'm aware that when the worship pastor says, it's Thanksgiving, let's just have a moment where we call out the things that we're thankful for. Half of you cringe, right? I do. But he says, but I'm asking you to go against that in a corporate setting to give thanks to God. Because thankfulness is something God has called us to embody, not just a holiday to put on our calendars. So first he says, thankfulness is meant to be done in a corporate setting. And then Paul goes on um, to say that it forms us. Let's look back at 16, verse 16 for a minute. He says this, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another that we are formed by the things that we give thanks for, that we are taught and we're encouraged, we're shaped by actually giving thanks. Paul actually sort of equates giving thanks and this environment, the worship environment. He says that for us, we are shaped by it. And then this is the interesting part. He doesn't say you're shaped by podcast or your favorite preacher on YouTube. He doesn't say that you're shaped by reading your Bible by yourself, although all of those conform us, what Paul says shapes us is this. Would you read starting with another with me? One another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Paul says that it's not just meant to be done corporately, but actually there's something about Thanksgiving that forms us, that shapes us, that theology that worship is theology through art did you know that we don't just start our service with three songs to buffer your drive to work or uh, church so that you right we laugh but i know that for me that's true it's like oh man i'm 15 minutes late i'll get there right before the sermon starts Paul says it's not the sermon that forms us by ourselves. It's actually the worship setting that we give thanks. You know, uh, Danny Carroll, who's a professor now at Wheaton, used to be a professor at uh, Denver Seminary, and uh, has actually shared this stage with our preaching team. Danny Carroll was my professor in seminary, and I remember one day just an offside comment he had. He said, the worship leaders in the Church of Jesus shouldn't be the coolest, youngest, and most tatted. If they are, that's great. But first and foremost, they should be the best theologians. You know, when you come here, the reason that those first two or three songs are not just buffer for for you to go to the bathroom is because this is almost a renewal of our vows every single week and we do it corporately And when we stand here and we sing the words that are carefully selected on the screen, we are reminding just like a vow renewal service of who we have committed to and what we have committed to. I had another professor in undergrad uh, teaching on the history of religion. And she said, um, if you want to know what people actually believed in a season of history, look at the songs they sang. I would argue that for us as believers, the songs we sing do not just reveal what we believe, but actually shape what we believe. That's why gathering here and giving thanks to God matters so much. It's meant to be done corporately and it forms us as we do it. But I also would say it pleases God. Paul in verse 16 and this whole section, he's encouraging us to gather, give thanks, not just because of what it does for us, but more importantly, because of what God wants from us. See, I think we have a misunderstanding of worship and some of you might have heard this before. It's not my original thought. I think oftentimes we see that the band, they're the worshipers and we are the audience. But actually what scripture tells us is that we are the worshipers. If anything, the band is just the facilitator and God is the audience. It means even if you don't have a good singing voice, God wants you to proclaim his goodness. Maybe your wife wants you to sing by yourself somewhere else or sing softly, and I can get behind her on that. But God cares about your singing. It, It means that this isn't some weird social club where you pay dues and fees and show up and there's a positive talk and music that you like. If you want that, join the Church of Scientology. (laughs) Oh, half of you are like, those Scientologists aren't coming back next week. (laughs) Oh man, our numbers are gonna dip. You know what, though? It's not the Church of Scientology. It's the Church of Jesus Christ. And what that means is that even if you don't like the last youth past or uh, worship pastor or you're not going to be a fan of the next, it doesn't matter because we are here. Obviously, we want to have people here that help us worship, but we are here not for a free concert on a Sunday morning. We're here to give our thanks and praise to a good God. So we are called, again, not just to give thanks, but to be a thankful people. We're called to do this corporately because it forms us and because it pleases God. But Paul wraps this section by telling us about the frequency that God's called us to do this in. And he says this in verse 17. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You know, giving thanks there, uh, the tense is reoccurring, ongoing. What that means is uh, it's telling us you don't have to give thanks in every second. But if you follow Jesus, you are called to give thanks in every season. It's a lifestyle of giving thanks. It's why we are called as a characteristic to embody thankfulness. It's a lifestyle. So what does that look like? Does uh, anyone here know the name Sarah Hale? Sarah Hale, Sarah Josepha Hale? You might not. This is a picture of Sarah Josepha Hale. Um, she uh, pioneered, she's an interesting figure in history. She pioneered women's education before it was cool and before it was controversial, okay? That was her. i are like, what are you talking about? That's not a thing. Um, and she also uh, wrote the uh, nursery rhyme, Mary Had a Little Lamb. So kind of cool there. Yep. Um, but the other thing that Sarah Hale did was she started a 36-year campaign, filling up magazine and newspaper pages, governors and presidents' desks, advocating for a national permanent day of Thanksgiving. 36 years. That is a lifestyle of giving thanks that is a frequency and lifestyle of being thankful now hopefully you don't take away from this message that you should go home and write polis saying we need a national day of giving thanks because he was going to lock in the loony bin because we have one but what does it look like for your family to embody thankfulness it, for me, a lot of days when I leave, and I know it's not corporate, is I won't let myself drive out of the parking lot until I come up with 10 things that I'm thankful to God for. For you, if you live by yourself, maybe it's writing it on your mirror or putting a post-it note somewhere you look all the time. For um, if you're a family, I would encourage you when your kids are not punching each other in the back seat to encourage them to give thanks before you get home. Paul says, "This is not just meant to be incorporate and form us and please God. It is meant to be a lifestyle." Um, there are mountain people and beach people. Yeah, raise your hand if you are a beach person. I know it's Colorado, so you kind of you can do this if you want. It's okay. I am um, a pastor; we can see, right? Awesome. All right, so we got some beach people in the house. So, if, if you are not a beach person, you probably still know this. Beach people, um, when you go to the ocean, right? I was right f- uh, 15 years or so in, Cal- in San Francisco and then the other 15 in Virginia Beach. So I grew up um, around the beach all the time. And what you would see is you'd go into the ocean and uh, you guys are at the beach, there's the ocean. Um, and all of a sudden you would be hanging out with a friend, watching a kid, doing whatever you're doing. And 20 minutes goes by, your feet have not moved, right? But what you realize is when you look up to see your umbrella, chairs, and cooler, they're now that way, right? Um, Because, and the first time this happens, it's a little jarring. You're like, oh my gosh, this is a twilight zone. It's like, wait, what? Um, So no, it's just the natural current of how our world works. There are currents and they drag us places. And oftentimes if we're not alert, if we're not actively walking against them, we shift and drift. You get where I'm going here, and that's great. I want you to. It's a very simplistic analogy to say that the natural current of our lives is not upstream to give thanks for all the things we have. When's the last time you walked into work and had someone holding a cup of coffee say, dude, I got to tell you, I've worked here 15 years, and I love this place. That would be weird, right? You would do the like slow backward step. We don't live that way. When you watch Don Lemon at night, or let's be honest for the other half of you, Tucker Carlson, neither of them say, well, good morning, America, this or good afternoon, these are the things we have at the top of the hour for you to give thanks for. That's not the way our world works. There's a natural Shift and pull that takes us away from a thankful heart. And Paul says, You are called to have one. We're called not just to be people who give thanks. And I know I'm saying this over and over. As Christians, we're called to be people who embody thankfulness. You know what's really interesting about um, uh, the Sarah Hale story? And I want to say this because some of you right now uh, are aware that I'm encouraging us to embody thankfulness, but you're thinking, you know what, though? Every person that walks through those big, heavy wood doors does not have an equal story or weight this morning of pain or of joy. And that's true. That needs to be acknowledged that God, somehow simultaneously calls all of us to embody thankfulness and yet all of us walk in here with different trials at first i just want to say that i acknowledge that that even the pastoral team recognizes that we don't know all of the things that you wrestle with on a weekly or daily basis What I find interesting about that Sarah Hale story, though, is that the year that her campaign for a day of thankfulness ended was 1863. You history buffs will know this. 1863 was the height, the ugliest, and the darkest year of the Civil War. What's interesting is that week she wrote a letter to the White House, and a week later, Lincoln decided... That there is something about forcing ourselves to give thanks that changes us. So he instituted a day of thanksgiving on the last Thursday of November, but he said these words, and I put them up here because I think they're important for us to see. He said, I ask every American to pray to God to... Commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife, and to heal the wounds of the nation. Uh, I'll be clear, uh, Abraham Lincoln is not a source like scripture at all. There's no comparison there. And I don't think this is significant because it's American. I think it's significant because it's a human response, and we as humans have been made in the image of our God. And there's something inside of us that often returns to, even if it's like three little boys in the back of a car that roll their eyes saying, I don't want to do this, but it does seem to change me. And I also believe it pleases God. It was at one of the hardest and darkest moments of our history as a country that we decided this is the time we will say Thanksgiving is a necessity. Now, for some of you, you're really hard to win over, and I still haven't won you over. And truthfully, you're sitting there and you're thinking, that's really nice. But that's not the gospel. That's not Jesus. That's not even Scripture. That's history. And I would agree with you, and I would actually say, I'm glad that you see that. So let's go to the gospel. Let's look at Jesus, and let's look at Scripture. There's something that stuck out to me this week. It really was my wife who pointed it out as I was preparing for this message. And it comes from actually um, the words of institution when we go to the Lord's table. And I had never realized it before. In a moment, I'll, I'll read this. But Jesus in this moment, he's about to be betrayed by a man who's walked alongside him for about three years. After that, he'll be sold for money to the Romans who are absolute excellently prepared to torture and kill a person and this innocent man will then go through 24 hours of a cat of nine tails and being nailed to a cross and being mocked and in that moment this is what is recorded Paul says for I received from the Lord what I passed on to you the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread And when, read this with me if you would. And when he had given thanks. Pause. Look, you're right. I know that we don't enter this room with equal pains and joys. With equal weights or stories. But Jesus in his darkest hour, forget our nations. Jesus in his darkest hour gives thanks. And I believe that as a result, we can, even if it is a offering to him in sacrifice, do likewise. This week, as you are sitting at a table with family or friends, there might be people there as well who have betrayed you. There might be people who are not there, who you would give anything to be there because they're not with us anymore. And I would encourage you to remember that your Savior, if you're a Christian, that Jesus himself sat at a table, likewise, with many conflicted dynamics at play. And he gave thanks. So with that said, I'd ask that we today take the Lord's Supper as a statement of Lord, regardless of, not regardless, with the weight, with the story that I carry. And with the situation I'm currently in, I choose to give thanks because I recognize it's not just something I do on the calendar. It's someone you've called me with the other believers to be and become.